Uh, yes, this is a good opportunity and an awesome chance for the church to move in the direction that we need to move and for the community. Um, the following is a s series of lectures um, by Dr. Um, Bobby L. Donaldson, a true treat to have in South Carolina, the, um, a native of Georgia who received his undergraduate degree in history of African-American studies from Wesleyan University in Connecticut and a PhD in American history from Emory University where he served on staff of the Martin Luther King Jr. Um, paper project and previously held the Thurgood Marshall Fellowship at Dartmouth College um, and the Susan Ford Fellowship at the WBD Du Bois Institute for African American um, Research at Harvard University, a true gem to have here in Columbia, South Carolina. And I do believe that you'll enjoy these podcasts and hearing from one of the leaders in the field. So sit back and enjoy and learn. Make sure you have your notebook and your paper because this is a time of teaching. Historiography. Now, ironically, Based on my research in the first ASCAC meeting in Los Angeles Southwest College in 1984, the topic and the title of that meeting was this, quote, Rescuing and Reconstructing Black History and Humanity. All right. So what I'd like to talk about this morning are those pioneering scholars and activists and historians who are working to rescue and reconstruct the history of reconstruction. Yeah. You'll bear with me, this uh, laptop gets stuck, so I'll be walking over here to hit the, the button. I'd like to begin, if, if it's stuck, I'll, I'll call me, with a quote from a South Carolinian, Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune. And in the 1930s, Dr. Bethune was actually the president of the association for the study of Negro life and history established by Dr. Carter G. Woodson. And during an occasion in Washington at one of their meetings, Dr. Bethune gave a lengthy interpretation of African-American history beginning in the now world of Africa. And in this, in this message, she talked about the important role of the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History as an intervention into the curriculum being taught in American schools. And she argued for the need to create new lesson plans, identify new sources that she argued is our obligation and our sacred duty to teach them their history. Now, one of the persons who agreed with her was this man, Dr. J.W.E. Bowen. Dr. Bowen was a professor at Gannon Theological Seminary very accomplished AME, uh, United, later United Methodist minister. But in 1895, Dr. Bowen pulled together an assembly in Atlanta, weeks after Booker T. Washington delivers his famous Atlanta Compromise Address. And the occasion of this gathering was called Africa and the American Negro, a Congress on Africa. In this discussion, 
he talked about the importance of a new history. These were his words. History is history, and fact is fact. What has been written is written and cannot be unwritten. This is 1895. We are afflicted in this day with a brood of ready, flippant, inaccurate writers, right and left, who are disposed to misrepresent the past, understate the present, at these times appertain to the Negro. To tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth is at times unpopular and distasteful. Now, this is not 2019. Let me repeat that. <laughs> to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth is at times unpopular and distasteful, and the fool, a venturesome youth who is thus audacious in public speech, will find that prudence and sophistry are no means virtues and accomplishments. Then he concludes, the American Negro is the American Sphinx. <laughs> His history has not been fully decided. Pioneering scholar Dr. J.W.E. Bowen, 1896, 95, was published in 96. Forty years later, a young burgeoning scholar writes the following in the Journal of Negro Education. He says, quote, it is unfortunately true that the writing of American history has been quite generally notorious for its lack of objectivity, its propaganda, and its passionate partisanship. Then he says, no era in American history has been so greatly abused in this respect as that of the Civil War and Reconstruction. The historians of this crucial period, the development of the American society, have remained slavishly devoted to partisan viewpoints. They have pleaded sexual causes. They have created and maintained racial stereotypes. So what is wrong with the history of Reconstruction in 1935? They have misrepresented and misinterpreted facts in order to sustain traditional social patterns. White supremacy, the Negro, unwilling pawn among the social movements and forces of this period, have been employed as the black dude by the vast majority of American historians. The black man has been maligned and ridiculed for his role in that titanic struggle and the racial stereotypes invented by axe-grinding historians to fortify their civil war and reconstruction, these largely remain controlling in the mental images of the Negro <coughs> held by the vast majority of the dominant population of the country. Yes, sir. The title of that speech was Reconstruction Reinterpreted. Yes. Published in October of 1935 in the Journal of Negro mm. Education. Mm. Published on the campus of Howard University. That's right. Now what's striking is that the author of this quote is not Dr. W.B. Du Bois. It is not Carter G. Woodson. Anyone have any idea who this might be in 1935? First African American received a Nobel Peace Prize. Ralph Bunch. Ralph Bunch said that 
In 19, Ralph Bunt said that in 1935. So what I'd like to dwell on this morning are those scholars, largely unknown, who set the stage for the Ralph Bunch, Carnegie Woodson's, and Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois. Notice the year that Bunch says this, 1935, Black Reconstruction, the mammoth book by Du Bois that was largely ignored and dismissed is now emerging. I'd like to go back to the year 1885 in my hometown of Augusta, Georgia. It was a meeting of a group called the Sumner Literary and Historical Society in 1885, and their mission was to document Negro history. The founder of the group was this man, the Reverend William Jefferson White. Now, I know Brother Gallman went to this school in Atlanta called Morehouse. This gentleman on the screen is the founder of Morehouse College in Augusta in 1867. He was a former Freemansboro agent. He was a founder of the Republican Party, and he was a staunch civil rights activist. And in 1885, he delivers a, an address entitled, The Negro Problem as Agitated in This Country. He says the following. Of all who came to this newfound world, none but the black man came by compulsion. As the Negro, as the country expanded territorially, labor became more valuable, the accumulations of wealth were greater, the ruling class became less humane, and the cords of slavery were tightened. With the end of the Civil War and emancipation vivid in his mind, Reverend White said, 1885, the war is not ended. The stronghold of caste and prejudice now confront us. This fortress is to be stormed and our walls leveled to the earth. I know, I do not know that I can give any better name to this fortress than Negro prejudice. Negro prejudice lifts its head every nook and corner. Three years later, Three years later, William Jefferson White extends an invitation to a journalist who wanted to travel from Washington, D.C. to Charleston. The journalist comes to Charleston, and he's there to do research on the failures of Reconstruction. So what transpires in South Carolina and the American South between 1877 and 1888. And this journalist comes and he goes to Charleston and then he goes to Augusta to meet the Sumner Literary Society. And what he does in his research, he takes back to Washington and reports on it. And he talks about how he's gravely disturbed by the failures of Reconstruction, the failures of the promises of Reconstruction, the uprooting of black schools, black landowners, black political figures who've all been cast to the margins. But the journalist goes back to Washington and writes this, and I think you may have heard of him before. His name was Frederick Douglass. And he writes a lengthy critique of reconstruction and the misinterpretation 
of Reconstruction. Someone who joins Douglas in this endeavor a few years later is this journalist, Ida B. Wells. Ida B. Wells, who had published on racial violence and lynching discrimination, was asked to write a memoir about her time. And before the book is published, Ida B. Wells talked about how this memoir, this autobiography, would be important to reinterpret Reconstruction. She says the following, it is therefore to the young people who have so little of our racist history recorded that I am for the first time in my life writing about myself. I am all the more constrained to do this because there is such a lack of authentic race history on Reconstruction times written by the Negro himself. But of the time of storm and stress immediately after the Civil War, our race has little of its own that is definite or authentic. The history of the entire period which reflected the glory of the race should be known. Though this is the case, most of it, most of our history is buried in oblivion. And only the Southern white man's misrepresentations are in public libraries and textbooks of the land. The black men who made the history of that day were too modest to write about it or did not realize the importance of the written word. And so, because of our youth, because our youth are entitled to the facts of race history, which only the participants can give, I am thus led to set forth the facts contained in this volume. And when you read Ida B. Wells' memoir, it is very much a revisionist account of Reconstruction history. And there are numbers of persons one could cite who join her in this endeavor, who seek to challenge the prevailing interpretation of this extraordinary period in American history, an interpretation that is shaped by the very individuals that Ida B. Wells indicted. And so in this window of time between 1890 and 1935, there are a series of essays, sermons, literary works, and editorials that challenge the prevailing interpretation of Reconstruction. These publications are direct political acts designed to correct and disprove popular and scientific ideas about African-American ineptitude, African-American political incompetence. So in this window of time in large halls and exhibitions and parades, we see Reconstruction being lifted up among African-American scholars and activists. Now, what are they responding to? One only has to look at the best-selling movie of the 19-teens, The Birth of a Nation by D.W. Griffith. Has most seen that? <clears throat> it is set in South Carolina. There is a scene that reinterprets the Reconstruction leaders of this state and if you are an uninformed individual, the takeaway of that scene is what? Incompetent, yeah. immoral, African-Americans sitting in the state house of South Carolina with no shoes, ragged clothes, sitting in their chairs with their feet on the tables, eating chicken. a chicken wing. Yeah. 1950, the best-selling movie of the time. 
a movie that was endorsed by one of the leading historians in American history at that time, who just happened to be the president of the United States. Yep. Dr. Woodrow Wilson. And the who White in the House. 1870s during Reconstruction lived four blocks from the state capital of South Carolina in Columbia. And he endorsed the film as being an accurate account of American history. This is what Ida B. Wells and others were referring to. This, this book, The Negro Beast in the Image of God, a best-selling account that chronicled white supremacy in the late 19th and early 20th century. She was responding to publications like The Leopard Spot and The Klansman, and this work was adopted, was used as the basis for the birth of a nation. This is what they're responding to. Now, not surprisingly, many of the leading defenders of African-American life and politics during Reconstruction were actually Reconstructing leaders themselves. And perhaps no witness of the Black Reconstruction era was as conscious or attentive to the value of history and its political consequences as was this man, John Roy Lynch of Mississippi. Lynch was a former congressman during Reconstruction. And in 1913, he published a book entitled, quote, The Facts of Reconstruction. Lynch challenged prevailing scholarship, prevailing popular interpretations, and observed that he did not, quote, attempt to conceal, excuse, or justify any act that was questionable or wrong. But in the preface, he notes the following. Very much, of course, has been written and published about Reconstruction. But most of it is superficial and unreliable because nearly all of it has been written in such a style and tone to make the alleged facts harmonize with what people believe to be the blatant sentiment. In writing what is to be found in these pages, the author has made no effort to draw upon the imagination. Let me repeat that. A witness to Reconstruction says the author has made no effort to draw upon the imagination, nor to gratify the wishes of those whose chief ambition is to magnify the faults and deficiencies in some to extol, to extol the good and commendable traits of white people. Now, after the Texas publication in 1913, the leading historian in terms of popular attention was a man named James Ford Rose. He published a number of popular books on American history, including this series, The History of the United States. And so when Representative John Roy Lynch turned the pages of James Rhodes's, Ford Rhodes's section on Reconstruction, he was astonished by what was alleged. For in this scholarly publication, James Ford Rhodes interprets Reconstruction precisely like the narrative in Birth of a Nation. Now here is someone like Lynch reading this. And so Lynch writes a damning critique of this book 
history of the United States. He tries to publish this book, this critique, Professor Carr, in the American Historical Review. He tries to publish the critique in the American Political Science Review, and they all refuse to publish. So he calls upon a colleague named Carter G. Woodson, who has a relatively new publication called The Journal of Negro History. And it is in that publication that Professor Lynch writes his critique of Rose. He says the following, this book is not only inaccurate and unreliable, but it is the most biased, partisan, and prejudiced work I've ever read. It is the most biased, partisan, and prejudiced work I've ever read. Now, I underscore this because if not for Woodson and the platform of the Journal of Negro History, I cannot even quote that reference. Lynch acknowledged that there were problems with Reconstruction, but he said, quote, fair, just, and impartial historians will someday Write a history covering the Reconstruction period in which an accurate account based upon actual facts of what took place at that time will be given. Instead of complication and condensation, these guys are right. Instead of complication and condensation of untrue, unreliable, grossly exaggerated statements taken from political campaigns. I suggest it is fair to argue that the impact of John Roy Lynch's findings on the larger field of Reconstruction has been largely overlooked and dismissed because our attention focuses on that of Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois. There's another pioneering historian I want to lift up today for our contemplation. Has anyone ever heard of Dr. James R.L. Diggs, one person. Who was he? In 1909, James R.L. Diggs was a Baptist minister in Lynchburg, Virginia. And he writes a letter to his colleague, Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois. James Diggs was also a member of the Niagara Movement. Later, he becomes the chaplain of an organization called the Universal Negro Improvement Association, established by Marcus Garvey. And he also serves as the president, later, of the Baltimore Division Number 72 of the UNIA. But in 1909, Diggs, who just received his PhD in sociology, writes Du Bois and says the following, educated Negro owes the world a history of Reconstruction. Let me repeat that. He tells his friend, an educated Negro owes the world a history on Reconstruction. No subject, he tells Du Bois, has been treated in a way more harmful to our race than this subject. We must give our views of that period before the public. The series of works by Southern writers present our white brother's side, but do not find proper credit given to our people for what good 
was really done during those days. Now, Du Bois follows Diggs' lead. Many of us know his book, The Souls of Black Women, published in 1903. But many may not know of his important article in 1910, published in the American Historical Review, entitled Reconstruction and Its Benefits. We also may not know a textbook that Du Bois writes in 1924. The title of the textbook written for children was entitled, The Gift of Black Folk. Different than the earlier publication, The Souls of Black Folk. In these works, Du Bois critiques not only leadership of people like Booker T. Washington, but he also critiques the history that Booker T. Washington and others underscore. <coughs> up from slavery. Booker T. Washington offers a disproving account of Reconstruction. This is what Booker T. Washington says in a best-selling book. Now, many of us know The Souls of Black Women, published in 1903. Booker T. Washington's memoir of the slavery was published in 1901. The Souls of Black Folk was not a bestseller at all. Up from slavery was. Circulated in many different venues. It is a best-selling book. So when you pick up the best-selling book, what do you read about Reconstruction? Quote, in many cases it seemed to me, this is Booker T. Washington writing, that the ignorance of my race was being used as a tool with which to help white men into office. And there was an element in the North which wanted to punish Southern white men by forcing the Negro into positions over Southern whites. In his next book, The Story of the Negro, Booker T. Washington perpetuates the myth of black incompetence and Negro rule, relying only on his memory. Remember someone else said your imagination? Relying on his memory, Washington offered a hopeful outlook on race relations in the South. Now, who does Washington use as the source of some of his information? He turns to this pioneering work, published by what many argue is one of the first known African-American historians, the Reverend George Washington Williams, who publishes a book called The History of the Negro Race, 1800 to 1880. Now, has anyone read this book? Few. Turn to the chapter you have a moment on Reconstruction. And this is part of what he says about Reconstruction. He says, the government gave the Negro the statute book, which was a mistake. The government gave the Negro the right to vote. That was a mistake. When he ought to have been given the spelling book. Huh. The leading historian, George Washington Williams, said, the government placed him in the legislature when he should have been in the schoolhouse. Overall, they were an ignorant majority without competent leaders who could not rule an intelligent Caucasian minority. 
Now, earlier, I talked about how Ida B. Wells critiqued both black and white writers about Reconstruction. One of the persons on her list was this pioneer historian, George Washington Williams. Many, many years later, the great historian Jonathan Franklin writes a compelling biography of George Washington Williams. Now, if you think about Booker E. Washington and George Washington Williams being the prevailing interpretation of the period, one of the persons who was deeply disturbed by this, and there are several new books coming out by this pioneering activist and journalist, William Monroe Trotter of Boston. Trotter, who had been at Harvard with Du Bois, writes Du Bois a note about the need to change the narrative on Reconstruction. These were his words. We want to hear you, talking to Du Bois, on the side of Reconstruction that deals with the anti-Reconstruction period and the Black Codes. So not only talk about the achievements of the period, talk about how it was undermined intentionally by roadblocks and racial violence. Now, Du Bois follows the lead of Monroe Trotter in the Souls of Black Folks and in the book Black Reconstruction. One of the important chapters in the book Black Reconstruction that the, the two of the, the dismay of my students I assigned to them is a chapter entitled The Propaganda of history. And in that chapter, Du Bois offers a critique of the failures of scholars who preceded him. Now, it should not be surprising to those who've read the biographies of Du Bois that Du Bois had a deep, perhaps the word disdain is not the word, but he felt some kind of way <laughs> about this man, Carter G. Woodson. Just read the correspondence. Here you would have hoped two major minds would have worked together. History does not suggest that that was the case at all. Both are Harvard graduates, and that means nothing. The boy said he was first. So Carter G. Woodson was another interventionist in the history of Black Reconstruction. And Carter G. Woodson's surveys of American life and history, which were adopted in many African-American schools and colleges, including Clapton. This is what he says in his publications. He says that his works, he observed that the works did not, quote, give the general reader much insight as to what the Negro was, how the Negro developed from period to period, and the reaction of the race on what was going on around him. There is little effort set forth about what the race has thought and felt and done in its contributions. And one of the important, one of the important contributions of Woodson is not only the number of publications that he published, both as an author and as a publisher, but also in the number of students and colleagues that he mentored. One of the unsung figures shaped by Woodson was this man. Dr. Monroe W. Work of Tuskegee. Originally, he taught at what is now Savannah State College in, in, in Savannah. And it was Monroe Work who often supplied a lot of the data that Carter G. Woodson used in his publications. Monroe Work was the editor of the path breaking publication 
the Negro Yearbook in his position as the director of research at Tuskegee. And it was, it was Monroe Work who thought it was necessary to conduct a systematic investigation, not only of the Reconstruction period, but of Reconstruction participants. So in 1920, he and Woodson began in earnest to identify the surviving members of the Reconstruction period, to pull their papers, and to conduct interviews with those individuals. And those papers are now housed in the Carter Woodson Collection at the Library of Congress. So there are letters from aging Reconstruction leaders from this period, including letters and speeches by this gentleman named Thomas E. Miller, who was a Reconstruction legislator who in 1896 goes next door and becomes the first African-American pre first president of what later becomes South Carolina State University. But Miller, on a regular basis, sent to Carter G. Woodson a series of observations about the Reconstruction period. So Monroe World works closely with Carter G. Woodson. Another pioneering scholar is this scholar, A.A. Taylor, our Ruthius. Ambush Taylor, a protege of Carter G. Woodson and later chairman of the history department at Fisk University. Now, has anyone here ever heard of A.A. Taylor? You may have heard of one of his prized students. His prized student was this man named John Hope Franklin, who was a student of Taylor at Fisk University. But Taylor, published a series of revisionist accounts of Reconstruction, both on Virginia and on South Carolina. Many of them were serialized in the Journal of Negro History. And Taylor sought to publish his work in major presses, and no one would agree to publish his work except Associated Publishers, created by Carter G. Woodson. In his work, Taylor not only highlights the errors of previous treatment of black participants, but he also signaled the need for greater consideration, not simply on the political aspects of Reconstruction, but on the social and economic aspects of Reconstruction. Taylor's student, John Hope Franklin, who I mentioned, wrote reviews of his professor's work. And he said that Taylor's research on Reconstruction, quote, pointed up the benefits of Reconstruction and proved conclusively that some Negroes possessed political morality and a keen sense of responsibility in public service. In his works, when you read the footnotes, Taylor not only consults the Reconstruction leaders, he's one of the first to look at the catalogs of historically black colleges, many of whom were founded during Reconstruction. He reads the minutes of church newspapers, and he makes a, a, a dogged effort to save all the black newspapers that were being published during the Reconstruction period. And those sources are also housed in the Carter G. Woodson collection at the Library of Congress. Another scholar influenced by Carter G. Woodson was this man, Dr. Charles Wesley, who, who wrote a path-breaking study of Negro labor in the United States. This book marshaled forth considerable sources to challenge the idea of black inferiority. 
and it highlighted the quote, physical compulsion and fear that was being used during this period. This is what, Woodson, this is what Wesley says. The unsatisfactory regulation of wages, the consciousness of new liberty, the mutual lack of confidence between the former masters and their former slaves, and the attitude of the Southern labor system to which the Negroes along with others were subject were the predominating influences in determining the Negroes' position toward labor in the early days of Reconstruction. Lazy, shiftless white men were judged as individuals, but lazy, shiftless Negroes were judged as representative of the group. Wesley goes on to argue that the majority of the studies of the Reconstruction period have been content to refer to this circumstance as if it were complete truth. He also takes on another major work of the period by Claude Bowers. Claude Bowers in 1929 published a controversial book entitled The Tragic Era. Now Du Bois from about 1909 to late 20s had been working on this mammoth book Black Reconstruction. And it is this work that pushes Du Bois to ultimately publish the book the next year, in several years, the of Black Reconstruction. Now, a way to gauge the impact of these publications is by gauging the response of African American intellectuals to these publications. So Bauer's book comes out to great acclaim, and many applaud it as a strong and sensible critique of Reconstruction. But black leaders respond and say, not so. And one of those persons who deserves much broader awareness is Dr. Anna Julia Cooper. Cooper was a historian in her own right. And when Bowers' book, The Tragic Era, is published in 1929, she responds. How does she respond? She says the following. It seems to me, now this is someone who lived during Reconstruction, it seems to me that the tragic era should be answered adequately, fully, and finally and again, it seems to me that you are that person. Now who is she writing to? It seems to me that the tragic error should be answered adequately, fully, ably, and finally. You are that man. She's writing to W.E.B. Du Bois, saying get this book done so that we may have a different account and interpretation of the Reconstruction era. And Du Bois does so. So I mentioned earlier about the 1910 American Historical Review um, essay that Du Bois published in that year. He also published the book Black Reconstruction. One of those persons who was influenced by the book Black Reconstruction is this young scholar, John Bill Franklin. In 1947, John Hope Franklin decides to begin writing his own account of Reconstruction. And he's very much upset about the publication of a book by a man named E. Merton Coulter. The book is entitled The South During Black Reconstruction. And, and 
In the critique of this publication, John Hope Franken yet again speaks about the failures of Reconstruction. Now what's important here, this is 1947. 1947. Over 10 years earlier, Du Bois' pathbreaking, revisionist book, Black Reconstruction, was published, seemingly setting the record straight about Reconstruction. And yet, time and time again, Du Bois' book is literally ignored by rebellion scholars. And so John Hope Franklin, a newly minted PhD from Harvard, says, how can you be a legitimate historian by ignoring some of the major works published in the last decade? He outlines what those major works are. Franklin's review of Coulter's work underscores the silences and deliberate efforts to disregard everything I just told you. While there is a great deal to admire in Du Bois's classic work, I argue that when you read The Souls of Black Folk, you are reading the work of Anna Julia Cooper. You're reading the work of Aruthius Ambush Taylor. You're reading the work of John W. E. Bowen. You're reading the work of Ida B. Wells. And so more attention need be given to the historians who enabled Du Bois' work. And while many of them faced nearly insurmountable obstacles, they remained, as you hope you understand today, dedicated to their vocation. Their work deserves and commands our new attention. Now, Dr. Galvin, that's where my original paper stopped. There is much more I want to add, but I want to pause now, entertain any thoughts, reflections, and questions, and then I want to go back and tell you what I hope to explore in the work ahead. So let me pause there and thank you for your time and attention. several pages talking about UB Phillips and William Dunning, both products of what's called the Columbia School of History. And their interpretation of Reconstruction is not, is not too far others are very selectively looking at certain sources, ignoring others, and presenting an interpretation that Reconstruction was a, an abysmal failure because of the incompetence and the immorality of black leaders and their Yankee supporters. And they cite this. What's astonishing about William Dunning and Eugene Phillips is that they produce, like Carnegie was a series of scholars who go across several states reproducing the very same critique. And so someone like A.A. Uh, a. Taylor, trained by Carnegie Woodson, writes a history of Reconstruction of South Carolina responding directly to a student trained by William Dunning. And these books are published within a decade of each other, and they are astoundingly different interpretations of the same time, time period. So these two persons, Phillips and Dunning, who you mentioned, they set the stage. And that is why these scholars, with no resources, no platforms, limited access to many of the leading schools in the country, slowly but surely chisel away at these arguments. Mm -hmm. sure. 
one of the sons of Sarah Palin, John T. Jackson, uh, did a sample of black people in the beginning. It's on the slide. Oh, okay. It's on the slide. And I want to tell you, where's Mr. Brown? One of our colleagues who was here earlier. Mr. Brown uh, does a lot of research on Ronald Brown Elliott. Mm -hmm. And there was a gentleman whose papers, I'm also an archivist. And there was a family in Columbia whose name was the Palmers. And there, two, of their, two of their ancestors were in the Reconstruction General Assembly in South Carolina. And when I was going through their papers, I found a copy of Jackson's history of black Reconstruction in South Carolina. And Mr. Jackson, who I knew from Chicago, was actually born in 1907 in Aiken, South Carolina. And his relatives are a part of that Reconstruction period, something I did not know until two months ago.
to get this out because there was no access. And so part of what I wanted to underscore when I talked about John Hope Franklin, who becomes, in many ways, the first endorsed Negro historian ever in the 1940s, is that he is now given a different platform to make his arguments. A platform that was deliberately, intentionally denied A.A. Taylor, denied other scholars of that period. But part of what is true is, and this is why Carter G. Woodson's story is so fascinating, I tell my students, Carter G. Woodson, a Harvard PhD, would not sign the contract that most white historians want to sign. There are certain things you leave out. And if you read his, his letters, he is unapologetic in this. And so he said, you will not hire me, I'll create my own. So the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History becomes one, not the only platform. There were other organizations founded at the same time period where this, this takes place. Let's go back to where I started. J.W.E. Bowen, the Atlanta Cotton States Exposition was supposed to be an occasion to celebrate the New South. It was supposed to be an occasion to talk about the collaboration between the Negro and the white Southern. Many of us know the takeaway from that occasion is the 1895 Atlanta Cotton States Exposition. But while meeting there in Piedmont Park, they also worked on history. Look at closely at the Negro exhibitions that were there. Those were interventions. J.W.E. Bowen thought there was an important platform to speak about an authentic and accurate history of Africa. Now, if you go back to the proceedings, they did not even get, get everything right, but they were going in the right direction. It is also the occasion, institutional building. So the Atlanta Cotton States Exposition, the National Medical Association, is formed in Atlanta. So you're right, Professor. Part of this effort is to create entities and platforms and organizations to tell our own story. Recognizing these other platforms mean that one must concede certain emphasis, certain facts, certain arguments. And so part of what we see is all of this is an intervention on part about history, but also an intervention about who tells the story. That is what Ida B. Wells is saying in autobiography. For too long, others have told our story. And if you let them tell it, you will be disappointed with what is written and published. Robert Jackson. So we talk about the brother in the back of the books that were published. So we often know the author on the front cover of these books, right? That's who gets the credit. That is not always who does the work. <laughs> and so if you look very closely, I have. At one point, I was doing research on the books published by the Associated Press, by Carter G. Woodson. And you look closely at the people employed in the office of the Association of Negro Life History, largely women 
who conducted the research in Paracord. If you look closely at the book Black Reconstruction, Black Reconstruction is published while Du Bois is a professor at Atlanta University. And many other researchers were young women uh, who did a lot of the, the background research that later becomes this mammoth publication of Black Reconstruction. You're exactly right. There's, there are many more scholars on the site who have been largely overlooked both then and now. Just a quick point on that. One of the, uh, first, the first publications of the association, even before this education, was Save the Iowa Daniels. Say Save the Iowa Daniels. Yes, indeed. Well, it's hard to find that. I've been looking for it originally. Some years ago, I was uh, very fortunate to attend a national conference of the Association for Negro Life and History in Durham, North Carolina, and had the opportunity to see what could probably be best described as a low-grade confrontation between John O. Franklin and John Henry Clark. Come on, That production and the publication that ensued were not written for us. <laughs> and so I stopped watching, honestly. I stopped watching it because there were too many cuts across the field that cuts overlooked some field. important topics. Um, and the thing is, when, and I know how these PBS publications work, um, there is so much on the, edit, on the editing floor that's overlooked. But the problem is this, the takeaway of most people, most people, what's amazing in, in looking at how that thing rolled out, it was the introduction to the reconstruction for most people for the first time. I was actually astonished how many people said they had no idea of reconstruction. And what they now know about reconstruction is the PBS series yes, by Gates. So part of what I do know, Gates becomes a door we gotta end, go through. Sets the stage for far more research. One of the topics that I think is, is mentioned but not in, in direct time is how does Reconstruction come to an end? So Professor Gates takes Reconstruction to 1900 and I can see merit to that. But to what degree is Reconstruction deliberately thwarted through racial terrorism? Direction. How do we want to look at what occurred on July 4th, 1876? across the river from our hometown in Augusta, at a black town called Hamburg, built by black people, 
led by black people. And on the eve of an election, a group called the Red Shirts come to that community with the intent of killing the leading figures. And what happens in Hamburg is then repeated in many other communities. There now needs to be greater research about the, the, the terror in, inflicted on black people to undermine this period. There needs to be greater research about the protest of feet of black people. So how many know of the direct connection between Arkansas and South Carolina? There's a direct connection in the, in the Delta of Arkansas and communities like Greenwood and 96, where people in the mid-1870s leave South Carolina in an earlier Great Migration. So there needs to be greater research and attention to that. There needs to be greater research about one of my most influential figures of the movement, a native of South Carolina. And I see, I didn't watch it, Dr. Gallin, so was he mentioned? I, I could watch it. Okay. I don't know if he was. I don't think he was. He would not. A great oversight. Henry McNeil Turner, a chaplain in the Union Army. Henry McNeil Turner, an elected member of the Georgia legislature who is dismissed from his job before he could ever hold a seat. Henry McNeil Turner, who championed a back to Africa movement before Marcus Garner, who influenced a man in New Orleans named Robert Charles. Henry McNeil Turner, who championed that God is a Negro. Henry McNeil Turner, who championed armed combat. Not mentioned. Also not mentioned, I, I thought surprising, given the focus of, of uh, Professor uh, Gates on South Carolina. And so part of, go back a moment. So when you have these publications, in movies, documentaries like Gates. And you have things like the extraordinary African American Museum in Washington. It's astonishing the things that are missing in these extraordinary. So what's missing is this man, C.C. Scott, and I suppose no one would have heard of him before. Charles Chapman Scott was a professor on this campus at Cleveland University. 1880s and 1890s. But Charles Chapman Scott is an 1876 graduate of the University of South Carolina. Nowhere mentioned in that documentary, and I've checked this one, <coughs> was there ever any indication about the impact of a powerful 1868 constitution there you go. Written by African Americans in South Carolina yep. that affirmed citizenship rights but also said every school that receives public funding must be open to every resident, male resident, without regard to race or previous condition. And so between 1873 and 1877, the place where I worked, the University of South Carolina, was an historically black cop. 90% of the students on the campus <coughs> and they are dismissed from the campus in 1877. C.C. Scott was one of those persons. So in 1911, Mr. General, what's your name, sir? 
He asked earlier about U.B. Uh, Phillips, and then I mentioned the name of William Dunning. William Dunning had a student whose last name was Taylor, and Taylor wrote a history of Reconstruction in South Carolina in 1910, which said between 1873 and 1877, the University of South Carolina was under radical rule, and the radical rule enabled incompetent immoral students without any qualifications to enroll in the university and tear it up. Wow. C.C. Scott, at that time a prominent Methodist minister, wrote this. You can't read it. This is a response to the book written by Taylor. It says, well, I beg to differ. I was a student on that campus. And I want to tell you about the people who influenced us. I want to tell you about Robert Brown Elliott, who I knew. I want to tell you about a man named Jonathan Jasper Wright, the first African-American member of the South Carolina Supreme Court who started a law school on this campus. Clap. I want to tell you about my professor. And my professor's name was Richard Theodore Greenham. Who was the first African-American graduate that we know of, of Harvard College, who served on the faculty between 1873, 1877, and in 1876 received his law degree from the University of South Carolina. I want to tell you about all these individuals who are not referenced at all in your publication. So in 1911, C.C. Scott writes a letter to the editor, that's it, in the state newspaper, the leading newspaper in South Carolina, offering a different interpretation of Reconstruction. An interpretation of Reconstruction that is not included in the path-breaking work of Henry Lewis Gates. Now notice this, let me say that one more time. That's how it was held, path-breaking. And I do not believe, Brother Goldman, that Gates acknowledges any detail, any of the people that I just mentioned. Yes, sir. Um, outstanding presentation, a lot of information that, you know, uh, in detail that I did not know about the reconstruction period. Only thing that I do know is that it's constant Caucasian backlash for any gains that we have made. Anytime that we take some steps forward, they knock us up five steps backwards. I'm a product of affirmative action. And I, I came on the walking fire department because of affirmative action. And many firefighters came in, police officers came in in the 70s, which of course, after that, those consent decrees and so forth were eliminated. And they started hiring as they had been did previously. So there's many cities, particularly the fire service, I can't speak too much about the police department, because they needed brothers and sisters, particularly brothers, to police our communities, which are still segregated. So when you talk about reconstruction, when you talk about any other time there were some steps made to forward us in this system, the Europeans who run this system tried to kick us back. Mm -hmm. My contention is, you know, get our own. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sovereignty. I believe in African sovereignty. And because of that, it's hard for me to deal with this constant European talk 
white backlash. You know, just as you've seen because of the election of Barack Obama, you've seen that backlash happen, where because of Trump being elected, the boldness of white folks who were just now in various areas, in various schools, you know, you're all within the public. So, you know, I appreciate this history, you know, and, and, and I admire the men and women of that, of that time. But once again, you know, just as my brother said, this should be about nation building, institutional building. Because to me, that's what reparations is about. It's to be, it's to prepare, it's to prepare us to establish nation. I mean, institutions where we can function freely in to, to educate ourselves, prepare ourselves to run our world. Because if we don't challenge us to run our world, we'll always be begging those who are running this system, this world. Now, now let me take that comment and tell you about a project I wish I had time for students to take on. So, some point in the last few years, I was working with Professor Sandy Derrick at Duke University. There's a new book coming out in the spring. I've seen it, about reparations. And part of what Dr. Derrick does is look at the history of deprivation of black people. And one of the stories included is this scene here. Anyone ever heard of a man named Garrison Frazier? Yeah. Reverend Garrison Frazier, you're not even talking. Reverend Garrison Frazier was a Baptist minister, yep. native of South Carolina. But on January 12, 1865, he heard there was an important man in, in Savannah whose name was William T. Sherman. And he holds court with Sherman and other members of, of uh, Abraham Lincoln's cabinet. And the question emerges, what do you all want? What do you see? What do you need to enable you to be free? And Garrison Frazier says, we need land of our own. The first response is not voting, not schooling, but we need a land to till on our own. Many of us know about the federal policy Bill Order number 15, 40 acres of mule. That did not emerge in the mind of Lincoln or O. Howard. That was a direct request of the freedmen. And Garrison Frazier was one of those. So what do you all want? Let's look at Charleston, 1865. You're now free by law. What do you want? Well, we simply desire that we should be recognized as men. With no obstructions placed in our way, with the same laws that govern white men to the red colored men, we have the right to try to our peers, the schools open or established for our children, that we be permitted to acquire homestead for ourselves and children, that we be dealt with as others in equity and justice. Charleston, 1865. Now, just imagine, I know it's hard to imagine. Imagine if that platform had been properly enacted. My Lord. If you know anything about the history of Reconstruction, you would know that this was dead on the right. Which is precisely why this issue of the wave of violence is so crucial. Because literally every inch made, miles were pushed down. Mm -hmm. And that degree of the, the history of racial terror, I mean, many have talked about uh, what happened in, in um, in uh, Oklahoma, in Tulsa, mm -hmm. 
But let's, let's go back some more decades and speak about the tragedy that inflicted on black people well before that period. And there's a personal investment here that I want to mention. I want to talk about this book. So, I, I know Mama Jackson was there. A year ago, maybe two years now, you know, a lot of these universities are trying to make amends for their role in slavery, right? Some people give out money, some people give out money. Our university gave out money. And we installed two very basic markers on our main quad, our horseshoe. And the university had to pay, and I, I, I played no role in any of that. <coughs> did not want to play a role in any of that. Symbolism without suffering. I agree, I agree with that. And the, morning, the, the day before, a colleague of mine named James Clyburn, congressman, mm -hmm. called me and asked, did I do him a favor? He told me he could not get back to Columbia to be the keynote speaker, and would I step in? And I was torn. For those who were there, I reminded the people at the university that I was not simply an African-American professor, but I was the heir of those who were enslaved people in South Carolina. And one of the names that I called out, and I called it out for the part of the day when you asked when we did the libations, yes. was this man, whose name was Alec Williams. We called him Alex, but we called him Ellen. Ellen Williams who was the Negro constable mm. in 1876 in a town called Ellington, mm. South Carolina, mm. which was later dismissed and uprooted with the, with the development of the Savannah River cycle. We call it the bond plan. Right. But my great-great-grandfather, Kelly, was a founder of the Republican Party in Aiken County. And in 1876, he called upon his neighbors to take up arms, this article mentions that, against white vigilantes who are going around trying to intimidate black voters. <laughs> you gotta read this that paragraph. Read that out loud. Hand the rocks So Alec Williams was the next speaker. That's my great grandfather. Yeah. Man, this song. He said, White people said they would have held their gun, but he had held the muzzle of his gun. Yes, sir. And he said the first man that interfered with him or that carried anything out of me, he would shoot him down on the dog. Yes, sir. My great grandfather said, As soon as the white men fired the first shot, the colored men were to pick right in and kill from cradle up. From the cradle up and run the white folks off the land. Have it. What do you want? You want land? Yes, sir. We'll have it for ourselves. Hammond mm. Ross, cousin. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Spoke and said, let the white men come as many as they please. It makes no difference to him. He had guns and men and ammunition enough to kill out the whole of Beach Island. Yes, sir. <laughs> and the lights would start the colored men. Start to and so and, and so reach out down with break and followed up with bombshells. Come on, right? Now, the reason I put this up, I had no idea any of this. I knew my great grandfather and his grandson. No one ever mentioned this. I came across this one day during teaching. 
And we were looking at Reconstruction. And I discovered that this man, Ellen Williams, in 1920, received a pension for serving in the Confederate Army. Wow. Servant. Yes, sir. In the Confederate Army. A man servant. Yes, sir. In the Confederate Army. So I started doing research. I said, who is this man? I mean, I knew the name. And so with thorough research, we realized that he served in the Army in 1865. And right after that, Alec Williams, the former Confederate servant, crafts the Republican Party. A different party at that time. <laughs> in Aiken County. And then fight for his life. And then later, there was a, there was a series of Klan uh, trials here in Columbia. In, in Columbia. And my great-grandfather testified about what he witnessed. Now that in and of itself is bold. You go on public record and name the individual who told the story. So when we unveil the slave markers in the universe, I said, wait a minute. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I need you all to know who I am. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And the legacy we stand on. And it's, a, it is, it's, it's quite amazing. You, you have the breeze in this field. And I can tell you a lot about everybody else. But my own people. And that's precisely what I do well others underscore. The need now for young people to know the doors through which they walk. That was besides the mission of someone like Carter G. Woodson. As much as we know about Carter G. Woodson's publications, has anyone ever seen what was called a Negro History Toolkit? These were kits created to teach in the public schools around this country that were then disseminated through Masonic orders, the Negro Teachers Association, because they understood precisely the received instruction in most of the assigned textbooks in classes. So always, Institution building as a way of intervention. Yes. Yes. Uh, I, want, I, want to, I want you to go back. Um, you, you spoke about um, the discussion that you had. Um, one of the scholars that you mentioned about having black people into legislation, and, and I think you said some people thought they should have been in schools, rather they were incompetent legislators when they should have been in school. Could you? Well, they can all, all they, they, they can all be above. I mean, part of part of what people understood, you have to be multifaceted. Okay. And a perfect example of this is someone who's now lifted up as a hero of American history. This man, Robert Small. Robert Small did not know how to make his subject of verbs agree, but he knew he was free. So Robert Smalls, who in, in most people's assessments was an unlearned, uneducated leader, is also the same Robert Smalls who argues forcibly for that 1868 Constitution. He's also the same Robert Smalls who in 1895 stands in Columbia resisting. So a progressive document is the 1868 Constitution of South Carolina open the doors for the University of South Carolina. But I invite you to read the 1895 Constitution. It's explicit in seeking to turn the clock back on Reconstruction. It was a Constitution advocated for by the man in stone, 
whose name was Benjamin Pitchfork Tillman, who from his governor's desk and in the halls of Congress championed lynching as a social arbiter of control. And he put forward a new constitution. But Robert Small stands up and says, listen, I know who I am. I know our history. I know what we witnessed. All we need is, quote, a simple chance in the battle of life. You give that to us, we can prove you wrong. So this was Ben Tillman's argument. Look carefully now at this. He said the 1868 Constitution, one written by Robert Smalls and others, was, quote, made by aliens, huh? yes, Negroes, yes, and natives, here we go again, without character, here, yes, recommendation, here we go, yes. all the enemies of South Carolina. That's true. And this constitution, written by Negroes and their people, yes. was designed to degrade our state, our people, our civilization. Wow. So one day in my class, I stopped and looked at my students. And I said, Mr. Garland, I'm going to define power. Yes, sir. Take it back. Take it back. By the way, the majority, the majority of the citizens of South Carolina in 1695 were black. That's right. And what, so, what did they say? What did they say? Excuse me? Yeah. Oh, it took one minute. Committee. No, no, no. Not that SNCC, not the SNCC of April 1960. I want to talk about the SNCC of October 1946. Another SNCC called the Southern Negro Youth Congress. The Southern Negro Youth Congress was a meeting of the African diaspora. Where African people from around the world came to Columbia, South Carolina. And they met in the largest venue in the city at the time, called the Township Auditorium, which had a capacity of about 3,500 people. So black people from around the world and white students, high school and college, including a delegation from SC State and Claflin, came to the Township Auditorium. For a meeting, notice this, the Southern Youth Legislature. Yes, sir. And they were, they were basing their gathering on Reconstruction. <laughs> so they needed the Township Auditorium to address prejudice, voting, Jim Crow segregation in October of 1946. But before gathering at the Township Auditorium, one of their teachers was a woman named Majeska Monteith Simpson. Mm -hmm. And she held a series of workshops at a historic African-American school called Harbison Junior College, which is now a state institution called Midlands Tech. Mm -hmm. But in August of 1946, she invited students to this campus 
to prepare them for the legislature. Mm. And she developed a curriculum. So if you are the teacher for SNCC, the first SNCC, and you want to prepare race-conscious students, yes, sir. what then do you teach during the course of that summer? So we found the curriculum. All right, now. So what do you teach a student? You teach them how to win the battle. Defending our rights, world affairs. You teach them about a job program. You teach them about the history of the Negro in politics. How do you prepare them? You teach public speaking. You teach parliamentary procedure. You teach public relations. What do you teach? You teach song. You teach how to use handbills. You teach how to write press releases. You teach them about the art of video graphics. Yes, sir. And right there, I have to stop talking to my students. Huh. How many ever heard of mimeographic? Not one hand. Mass production. So Patrick Holmes talked to those students uh, in Columbia in 1946. These are some of those students. One of those teachers was this woman here, whose name was Mrs. Um, Mrs. Wilson. Her name is Ma Wilson, who taught social studies at Bennett College. In 1946, she was a teacher of the Southern Negro Youth Conference. Most people in Columbia do not remember Ma Wilson. They know her granddaughter's name is Asia Wilson, our star Now, to show you how we close the doc here, now pause. This is the stage of the Township Auditorium in 1946. So for this meeting of the Southern Negro Youth Congress, around the entire auditorium were six foot tall photographs. Who was on the wall? Robert Brown Elliott, Robert Smalls, Jonathan Jasper Wright. The students met surrounded, literally, by reconstruction theory. Literally, surrounded. On that Saturday, they meet in the township. And the speaker that Saturday was a man named Paul Rose. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That was Saturday night. And not to be outdone, they conclude the deliberations on Sunday. And they meet at a Tisdale Chapel on the campus of Benedict College. And the concluding speaker was the old man himself, Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois. And he delivers a powerful speech called Behold the Land. In the speech, he reviews the history of Reconstruction. In the speech, he condemns the white leadership of South Carolina. And in the speech, he encourages the students there to learn their history, to prepare them for the battlefield. And he said, the battlefield is in the American South, fighting injustice. And he said, the foot soldiers in the battle will be young people who know their history. The Southern Negro Youth Congress met 14 years before the SNCC that we just talked about. That's Esther, who's yeah. still living. She's still alive. Her papers yeah. are at Mega Everest, which we talked about. Who Esther Cooper Jackson invited to come to that to the camp. Wow. She 
was an organizer too. And there was another woman whose name was Dorothy Burnham. And we invited Dorothy Burnham back to Columbia three years ago at 103 for the 70th anniversary of the Southern Negro Youth Fund. Of course, that's who Jackson is, co-founder of Freedom Wave, edited by John Henry Correct. I have a question for you, but before I do that, I want to say, I think you have done excellently well and spoken so eloquently about the reconstruction era. But I think the greatest plus I'm going to give you today is you have highlighted those scholars who were not celebrated over time. I thank you for that. But my question is this, as one who would like to do a comparative analysis mm. of the Pan-African scholars who have written so well of the reconstruction era. I would like you, as an intellectual scholar, to point to me one profession who wrote a book on the reconstruction that, from your perspective, was so closest to the truth, from your perspective, point one scholar to reconstruction. So I can, and my people can do a comparative analysis. Well, let me tell you something to, to read. Read Kenneth Stanton. Kenneth Stanton. Read C. Van Woodward. And the book that many argue, and I don't necessarily agree wholeheartedly, that gets closest to black reconstruction is a book by Eric Cohen, who, by the way, is the scholar of record for Henry Louis Gates. That's that. Read Postman, Eric, Eric Conner, F-O-N-E-R, okay. C-Man Woodward, Kenneth Stamp, and I'll give you my card, because I have a much longer list that I can't call right now. But somebody else I want to look at real quick, and I'm trying to go. I want to look, oh, let me go back. The History of Reconstruction is written by Marvin Delaney. History of Reconstruction written by a native of Winsboro named Kelly Miller, who was denied entrance to the University of South Carolina. But also this one, and I wish I had a graduate student, Dr. Mateo, to do this. Ms. Kilda Grayson Finney. You all see that name on there? Ernest A. Finney, Junior Auditorium. Mrs. Mrs. Finney was his stepmother, and she taught here in Orange. And she created, based on Carnegie Woodson, her own series of Negro history toolkits that works that were created to challenge the South Carolina history textbook that was that was required to be taught in South Carolina. Now that textbook was written by a woman for over 50 years. It was called the Sims History of South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And the Sims History of South Carolina said that slavery was a benevolent institution. The, him, the Sims History of South Carolina said that Reconstruction was a terrible travesty that was only saved by the valiant clan who came to the defense of white people. The Sims textbook said that African Americans were content being in segregation. And Miss Finney said, not so. So she creates her own series of textbooks and later teaches Negro African American history in Southern California, in Los Angeles. Uh, one of my ancestors, Lee Nance from Newberry, was a delegate to the 1868 uh, conference. And, and, and uh, Lee Nance, and one 
opportunity to ask him when I was doing family history, and he said Lee Nance was just there, he didn't talk to him. But then he did enough that he was assassinated by uh, some Democratic, some uh, uh, Democratic uh, operatives. But my question, right quick, your brother was assassinated? Yeah. Um, my question is, in a comparison to where we are now, uh, Rayford Logan described the period after Reconstruction as the Nadir. Are we in Reconstruction or the Nadir right now? chisel away and the deer becomes its lowest point. So if you look at this window of time when all of these stars are white, so you look from Bowen up to uh, Du Bois 